This week on the show, we have the Idiot's Guide to OpenBSD on the Pinebook Pro. The FreeBSD periodic scripts is what we look a little bit deeper into. The history of service management in Unix. Journey from a macOS to FreeBSD. Unix processes infecting each other. Navidrome music server how-to on FreeBSD and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 445, Journey to BSD, recorded on the 23rd of February 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoid. And if you'd like to support this show in various ways, check out our Patreon page on patreon.com slash bsdnow and put some money in our tip jar or remove the ads that you were seeing in this episode or hearing. Thank you. Hi, we're your hosts, Benedict Teuschling. And Alan Jude. Welcome. This is Headlines Fresh from the Oven, or more or less, uh, the complete idiot's guide we found to OpenBSD on the Pinebook Pro. And why is it the complete idiot's guide? Well, it's certainly easy enough to follow along. <laughs> so today I will show you how I installed the latest snapshot of OpenBSD on my Pinebook Pro, with plenty of details on what you can do too. I will include instructions for setting up uh, full disk encryption and include with a summary of my experience of running OpenBSD on this device. Why would you want to do such a thing? Because you can. And there's a, a link in there, a footnote. Uh, that said, there are a couple of caveats around this exercise. I will try my best to convey the pitfalls and shortcomings of the state of the art so that you can decide whether this is something uh, for you or not. The most important caveat is quoted in OpenBSD's install.arm64 text file. Please be aware that OpenBSD support for this platform is far from complete. Also worth stating that we are on moving ground. By the time you read this, things might have changed, hopefully for the better. So be mindful that when following the steps and do not hesitate to deviate based on your circumstances. Exercise common sense and good judgment and strive to get an understanding of what you are doing before you do it. You should read and understand this article in its entirety before you try to follow along and start touching your Pinebook Pro. You might also want to go through earlier reports of OpenBSD on the Pinebook Pro. Uh, and he's got links to other people's attempts to do uh, OpenBSD 6.7 and 7.0. Uh, so as an overview, we'll start installing the latest OpenBSD snapshot on a Pinebook Pro. Uh, this one was manufactured in April 2021. That manufacturing batch was a fairly large one at Pine64, and I speculate the majority of Pinebook Pros uh, in existence are not significantly older than this one. Your hardware should therefore be more or less the same with the exception of the earliest batches where various issues were found and since have been ironed out. Uh, we will install OpenBSD by writing the mini root image directly to the onboard uh, eMMC and patching it with the bootloaders so that machine will boot from that eMMC. To do this, you will need to unscrew the Pinebook Pro's bottom plate and unplug the eMMC attach it to another computer via a USB to eMMC adapter and write or flash or burn or etch or whatever keyword you like the data onto it, then stick it back in your Pinebook Pro and boot up the OpenBSD installer from there. The installer will load uh, from the eMMC into memory and run in a so-called RAM disk, allowing us to install the system directly back to that eMMC that we're running the installer off of. Uh, so we're kind of changing our pants while running here. Uh, and then we'll also use the Pinebook Pro serial console. So you will need a serial cable plugged into your headphone jack uh, 
and the other end connected to a second computer where you can interact with that serial terminal. In addition to the eMMC, uh, we will also prepare a USB stick to carry the archives of the OpenBSD distribution set, as well as a firmware binary relevant to the Pinebook Pro. Note that we do not use an SD card and we won't need the Pinebook Pro's SD card slot at all. SD cards are trickier than they seem. On the other hand, a good old USB stick is easy to find and generally pretty reliable, usable without issues even across different operating systems. And they have instructions here on how to remove the EMC and so on. Uh, so preparation, they have their different tools. They have their USB to EMMC adapter so that they can write to the EMMC. They have their USB to serial cable with the headphone jack connector. Uh, and that's what will turn the Pinebook Pro's headphone jack into the serial console. A USB memory stick and a Phillips screwdrivers uh, of a fairly small size to get those uh, screws out of the bottom. And they go through talking about the pinout of the USB headphone jack system and so on. Then they download the installed ARM64 snapshot image of uh, OpenBSD 7. And they kind of walk through that process, including using Signify to verify uh, the image and make sure it's correct. Also having to fetch the firmware archives, um, specifically for the Pinebook Pro. Uh, there's two firmware images, the BWFM and UVideo, uh, both of which you will need. And again, using Signify to verify those. And then the bootloader uh, packages, they're grabbing uh, the DTB and U-Boot for ARCH64. And then they walk through preparing the memory stick, testing the serial console, and now the point of no return where you're writing the data to the laptop. So they show, they have even uh, nice pictures of how to uh, take it apart and where to find the right EMMC to pull out and plug into your USB adapter and so on. So removing the EMMC, backing up the data that's already on it in case you wanna, you know, put it back to how it came at some point. Then preparing the EMMC by writing the OpenBSD mini root to it, and then patching in the DTB files for the bootloader then booting that up and installing OpenBSD, doing the base system install, having it pull the install tarballs from the USB stick, and congratulations, your OpenBSD install has been completed successfully. And then now you're at a, an OpenBSD login prompt. Then they uh, grab the firmware binaries and get those set up, connect to the Wi-Fi, and fire up their uh, Xeno DM, so now they have uh, an X login screen. And then it talks about how to do full disk encryption uh, and some caveats about full disk encryption, uh, some minimal tuning and survival tips, like enabling APMD to save uh, battery by lowering the clock speed, adjusting the brightness on the screen, so A, it's not too bright and hurts your eyes, but also turning down the brightness will give you more battery life. Currently pressing delete, uh, we'll do uh, function backspace in Xterm does not work out of the box the way most people would expect. And so they show how to change that in your X resources file. And then they have their kind of first impressions. They have a graphical desktop, keyboard and touchpad all working fine. The battery charge indicator seems fine using i3 status. It suggests having seven hours of battery life uh, when idling at 50% brightness. The wireless network adapters seem to work, but do not expect great performance. They only got 40 to 50 megabits per second of throughput in the five gigahertz band and around 20 megabits in 2.4 gigahertz. 
for comparison, the same uh, Pinebook Pro running uh, Manjaro for ARM, I uh, got about 85 megabits per second on 5G. Audio plays through the speakers. The headphone jack is still hooked up for serial, so I didn't switch over uh, to trying to play audio out the headphones. Um, oh, they uh, did notice that the mute uh, volume up and volume down function keys work out of the box, which is great. The webcam seems to work following the steps in the webcam FAQ on OpenBSD. Uh, their usual i3 setup uh, that they've been using for the last decade or so worked completely out of the box. Uh, and they installed, you know, Firefox ESR and added Privacy Badger and Ad Blocker and so on, and all worked fine. Uh, although they said the browsing experience was a bit sluggish, but okay. Uh, they also successfully bumped their OpenBSD snapshot to a newer version using SysUpgrade. Uh, took about five minutes. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a decent how-to with a lot of uh, output and descriptions. How do you do that? What kind of commands to type? So definitely good if you want to try something like this or on another device with similar yeah, and they have a, a bunch of workarounds for issues including if what to do if the wi-fi driver hangs how to get a real console you know printed to the lcd how to power it off correctly um playing with the microphone input uh detecting whether the ac charger is plugged in or not the sd card slot suspend and resume and a bunch of conclusions and it's all got footnotes and everything so it's worth checking mm -hmm. out Another thing to check out is FreeBSD's periodic scripts and Clara Systems has an article about them and they write about that. Starting, FreeBSD provides a built-in mechanism for periodically running scripts to report on the health of the system and perform various routine maintenance tasks. In today's article, we will take a closer look at the periodic system. Finding the available scripts, configuring which scripts are run and when, configuring notifications and taking a look at a script with an eye towards creating your own maintenance scripts. Unlike using CronTap, Periodic ensures that only one maintenance operation is run at a time and provides a robust mechanism for managing priorities and adding your own extensions. Okay, finding the scripts first. Not surprisingly, the Periodic scripts live in this slash etc periodic directory. This directory organizes the scripts into four subdirectories, daily, weekly, monthly, and security, not yearly. So <laughs> you have to use that on your own. Uh, each of the built-in scripts starts with a number indicating the order of script execution. The name portion of the script summarizes the purpose of the script. These are commented born shell scripts, some of which contain configurable variables. As an example, here is the beginning comment in etc periodic slash daily slash 100 uh, dot clean dash disks. Remove garbage files uh, more than dot daily clean underscore disks days days old. So maybe 100 days old or 50 days or whatever. Periodic conf man page provides a description of each script and available configuration options. So study that. Becoming familiar with the default variables. By default, some scripts are already enabled, configured to automatically run, and some are not enabled, meaning that they will not run unless you change the script's enable value to yes in the periodic config file. The default values indicating which scripts are set to run and their configurations are in etc defaults/periodic.conf. If we grab for the yes value on the FreeBSD 13 system they were using and uh, pipe the output as a word count, we see that 500, no, sorry, 54, are set to yes by default. But you could put that up to 500 probably. Um, 
Then we'll pipe the output to head to see the first 10 items. So that's uh, also depicted here. Uh, okay, these are some daily show success, show info, clean disks, verbose, and stuff like that. Notice some of the scripts have options to additionally uh, enable. Uh, in the example here, this daily script clean, pre clean preserve and clean r who have a verbose option to indicate whether or not the script should list the files deleted. Yeah, and we talked about you can adjust how often to scrub your pool if you enable that. Uh, and for me, on my home file server, I have the weekly locate job turned off because I don't need it to walk through my entire media library and know where every file is uh, in the locate database. <laughs> and the daily security uh, check set UID and check negative permissions checks are both turned off uh, because walking... 40 terabytes of data every week uh, looking for those was just causing a bunch of fine processes to run for a long time. Uh, especially also I had, you know, a lot of that data is in one jail. And so it would, the find on the host and the find on the jail would both be walking the file system, basically the same file system because it's reachable all the time. And, you know, it meant every Sunday there was a giant load spike. Uh, and I was like, you know what? I just don't need that to happen anymore. <laughs> No need to burn cycles here that don't uh, have an effect on my system here. And then the, the biggest thing from the article is configuring where to send the results. Because, uh, you know, if you want it to go to an email, that's great. Or you maybe you want it to go to a file that you will examine if you care and so on. Mm. Yeah, that's good. If you want to have something to read in the morning, except that other email that you got. Yes, from your boss. I, so let I remember when I had my first FreeBSD <laughs> box, I looked forward to that email every morning to look at. And then when I had 15 boxes, like, I don't read these. Please stop sending it's them It's to too me. much. Yeah. <laughs> you get information overload and you kind of only look for things that are out of the ordinary and want to get notified about those. Not that everything went fine overnight. But yeah, the article describes how you find these files and uh, make configuration. And as Alan said, how to send and what to send to you in case something is out of the ordinary. Cool. Good to know about these and extend these uh, is also described a little bit, how you can add your own periodic scripts. Next up, we have the news roundup with the history, or sort of, of service management in Unix by Chris Seibelman. Yes, great. Uh, more content from Chris. We love it. So he says, uh, it's common for sophisticated Unix init systems to also have some degree of service management system. The most obvious example is Linux systemd. However, many people have observed that I didn't have, uh, it didn't have to be this way and have created separate systems for this, such as uh, Daniel Bernstein's daemon tools and so on. Since service management or the lack of it uh, has become one of the important areas of Unix init systems, you might wonder why they've come to have this responsibility anyway. A significant part of the reason is history, although there are also some pragmatic reasons. And there's a bunch of links here uh, to read more about that. He says, I also think that it's what people want. System administrators mostly don't want to have to deal with an init system and then a separate service supervision system. They want to deal with one thing. Specifically, for a long time, Unix didn't have any sort of service management as such beyond init restarting the Getty process. All services were simply started as part of the boot process and what started as a very simple script and grew only somewhat from there in BSD Unixes. If you needed to check the status of a service, 
you ran PS. If you needed to restart a service, you terminated it with the kill command and then started the new version by hand. The system 5 in its system moved forward or moved this forward somewhat by creating a script that encapsulated the knowledge of how to start, stop, and sometimes check the status of each service. But it did nothing to manage the services as such. It still merely booted and shut down the system. Noticing that a service daemon had died and starting them again was up to you. So in system 5, uh, init, you could theoretically use init tab uh, for restarting daemons, but the overall init system environment didn't support doing it in this way. Historically, starting services was considered intertwined with the process of booting Unix. Starting uh, when Sun introduced diskless NFS-based workstations and other people copied them, these daemons needed to be started and running before slash USR could be mounted. You couldn't uh, defer starting all services until the system was up. But at the same time, you couldn't just start all services uh, as a bunch of them would depend on a file system actually being mounted. This entanglement of starting daemons and booting the system made putting everything in boot scripts the normal way forward from the mid 80s onward. Uh, a daring Unix vendor could have introduced a separate service system, Sun eventually did sort of that with SMF, but it still would have been deeply entwined in the boot process and thus the init system if it was going to handle all daemons and services on the system. Third-party systems, such as DJB's daemon tools, generally had a simpler job because they weren't envisioned as handling all daemons and services. They were just going to handle some of them, such as DJB's other programs like QMail and TinyDNS. In practice, Unix vendors in the 1990s were not daring. Instead, they were busy fighting with each other, uh, OSF slash 1 versus System 5 release 4, and getting run over by the march of the cheap. The free Unixes did not uh, or did no better. The free BSDs uh, were busy being faithful to the purity of uh, UCB's BSD 4.x, and Linux was hard at work building a Unix from scratch and perhaps was not inclined uh, to depart from various versions of what was Unix at the time, as a result, the Linux is not Unix controversies of the time. This is somewhat grumpy summary of the situation since the BSDs, uh, the free BSDs, by which he means NetBSD and OpenBSD and so on, uh, did make major changes in their init uh, setups in practice, but for whatever reason, none of them changed drastically into a separate service manager setup. Although daemon tools and other implementations show that the idea was definitely around in the open source Unix community, possibly one problem is that Solaris's SMF wasn't a good system. And he says, P.S. I wrote a somewhat different version of this history some years ago in how init wound up as Unix's daemon manager. Rereading that, I see that in writing this entry, I forgot how the addition of networking in BSD Unix complicated system boot and daemon startup because now you needed the network configured before some daemons could start. Mm -hmm. Well, that's quite interesting. Yeah. I'm just thinking about some parts of it and wondering, like, we have the daemon command that can take care of restarting a daemon if it dies, right? There's a flag in daemon to make it just restart. It's like, I wonder if we could just have, as part of our RC framework, an extra flag you set that just says, you know, supervise this. <laughs> mm, and then when it dies, restart it, it automatically. Restart. Of course, yeah. most of the time now, any useful daemon, if it dies, it's for a reason such that restarting it isn't going to help. Mm. Like, okay, so I'm just, just like, I'm thinking of like an Nginx that's running. It should never die. Uh, and most of the times when it does, it'll be 
you know, it even protects itself. Like when you try to do a restart, it's like, I'm going to check the config first. And the config's not good. I'm not mm. actually going to execute that restart because that would result in me being down. Yeah. I want to live. So yeah. sometimes <laughs> in practice, I wonder how important this actually is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, while we think about that, we look at the next article, uh, my journey from macOS to FreeBSD. And uh, this goes... World of Apple, at least it's the title here. I would like to share my personal experience with my recent move to the PC world. My journey started in MS-DOS and then Windows, as it's common for many people. Later on, I moved to Linux, but only on desktop. When the time came and I needed a laptop, I was fascinated by the hardware and software quality of Macintosh. Back then, it was an era of PowerPC that was coming slowly to an end. I brought my first MacBook Pro around 2007, and I was really satisfied with it. I love the Unix roots of macOS 10. Uh, it was a combination of Mac kernel and FreeBSD userland that gave it its a unique strength and architecture. The oh yeah, I absolutely fell in love with Aqua interface on macOS 10 Tiger. All those glossy, beautiful buttons and scroll bars really captured my heart. Uh, during these years or these years, Apple started turning away from its beautiful UI into a world of plain, soulless, and minimalistic UI. They also gradually abandoned their original focus on nurturing various third-party languages and integrations, like their own Java implementation. The Java was not only well integrated into the desktop, but also more performant than the standard implementation from Sun. Those days are gone, though. Desktop experience became so dull and lost its focus on users that it's just a ghost of its former glory. New releases are not shipped when they are ready. Back, to, uh, back then it took a couple of years to do so, but rather on schedule every year, no matter if it brings value or not. The hardware itself also got worse. Removal of all but two USB-C ports for Mac Pro was a, the last nail to the coffin for me. Although the recent one still has, or has again, decent uh, connectivities. But yeah, that's me. Um, into FreeBSD. Not everything in the world is doom and gloom, though. During a difficult part of my life last spring, I took a few weeks off to recover and to overcome many shackles in my life. Curiously, maybe as a part of the of me regaining my inner freedom, I decided to install FreeBSD and VMware on my Mac. I was immediately fascinated by the OS architecture and the clean distinction between the base system and third-party packages. I explored the potential of ZFS file system, learned how beautifully it integrates with the system itself, and I appreciated that the FreeBSD team made such thoughtful effort to integrate ZFS into the existing ecosystem. I became increasingly intrigued by the FreeBSD system philosophy and its Unix heritage, and I started dreaming again. At some point, I couldn't stand my Mac anymore, and I started looking for hardware that could become my laptop. I soon realized that I knew nothing about the PC hardware. I started pestering my friends and colleagues about what kind of hardware I could choose, but frankly, none of them had experience with FreeBSD on a laptop. Originally, I wanted to go for a framework computer because I loved the idea of a repairable machine. But the problem was that framework didn't ship to the UK. That was in 2021, last year, before they started accepting pre-orders for the UK market. I found that Lenovo still makes pretty good hardware, so I decided that I would buy a Lenovo ThinkPad T470. I realized that I didn't want to pay the full price of a new laptop. If I bought a refurbished laptop instead, I would not only save two-thirds of the price, but would also get almost the same hardware as I had on my Mac. Not exactly, though, as the display is not as good as Apple provides, but yeah, well. At this point, I found a local UK reseller of refurbished hardware, did the laptop configuration, and then in a couple of days, I had my PC laptop delivered. I had a lot of experience already from many VMware installations I did before, and I also had all my configuration and scripts files meticulously prepared. The installation went well without any hiccups, and roughly after 20 minutes, I had my new system up and running. I didn't feel so happy for a long time like that day. I was really proud not only of myself, but also of the FreeBSD system and the laptop itself. 
Okay, then there's a section about present times. A couple of months passed since I installed FreeBSD. I've upgraded the system with several patches, always using boot environments provided by ZFS to be on the safe side. I have never had to reboot and roll back any system upgrade. I'm using a quarterly package branch rather than the latest one because I prefer stability and security over new features. Also, what kind of new features I would get from Xorg, BSPWN or Vim? I installed a number of minimalistic apps and started playing around with jails. I love the idea of very lightweight containers that FreeBSD provides out of the box. Because of this, I learned how to install the DNS server, proxy, how to work with private IP address space, and also how to assign jails human-friendly host names. FreeBSD gave me a stable, clean system that works as I expected expect to. It's predictable, reliable, and stable. I can configure it exactly the way I like. It brings me joy, inspiration, and provides a never-ending source of learning experience. I'm happy to see that again. After so many years, the computer serves me, and not the other way around. I still would not recommend it to non-technical people, because it requires quite good knowledge of Unix systems work. Whoever seeks to learn and would love to regain the freedom of truly owning their system and data, I recommend it from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Cool. Is that a love story, you know, from happy from bad to a happy ending? Mm-hmm. Very nice. I like it. And then we have a, another interesting one here uh, from Rachel by the Bay. A nice story about Unix processes infecting each other. Ooh. I once worked at a place that had an interesting little problem stemming from the way they manage machines and some of the fun side effects processes can have on each other. This is back in the pre-SystemD days of running services, such that things uh, tended to be started or restarted by someone or something that ran that itself ran as root. That is, if you started something, it might inherit one or more things from your environment. Likewise, if you ran something with an unusual environment, it might bestow those gifts onto anything that it happened to touch. This story uh, involves a little, uh, or sorry, a lot of weird little things going back a ways. Anyone who used to run OpenSSH before it was a stock part of their Linux distribution probably ran into the problems uh, where you'd apply an upgrade to GWC and then OpenSSH would stop letting people log in. This ultimately turned out to be a mismatch between the dynamically linked bits of libc uh, in the running SSHD and the NSS uh, stuff for authentication on the disk that would be grabbed on the fly and so would be now be a newer version. After locking themselves out of machines too many times, people generally learn that after you mess with a glibc upgrade, you restart SSHD on port 22 so that the listener would spawn new processes for anybody that connected and that would have the new glibc and so on. Of course, they also had to learn to not whack every SSHD process at the same time, lest they kneecap the very thing that was letting them onto the box. Uh, but that's another problem entirely. Okay, so after whatever summer it was when we kept patching these things every few weeks, like 2002, 2003, People probably had this drilled into them. Keep that in mind as we go forward. So we had this little management uh, stuff that worked by having a whole bunch of little scripts that would run to take care of things. I ran everything on the fleet of servers several times an hour, and it would fetch updates uh, to these scripts, then run them and upgrade or downgrade packages, restart things, and generally keep the boxes up to date. For various reasons, uh, this process ran nice to plus 19, meaning the Linux scheduler was told to take care of all other processes that want a CPU and only give the leftovers to uh, these processes. It also ran Ionized, which told Linux to, uh, you know, let everybody else have more access to the disks first as well. Normally this was fine, but sometimes it had an interesting effect. One time a glibc update went out 
uh, this management stuff noticed and upgraded the packages. Then, because of the NSS shenanigans from over a decade before with OpenSSH, their post-install script for the glibc package included a service sshd restart. This forced it to stop and restart the listener on port 22 so that it would still be able to let people log in. This sshd got started inside the doubly nice environment because it was the package upgrade got run as nice to 19. And so when the package upgraded and ran service sshd restart, sshd now started reniced to plus 19 and worst IO nice. <laughs> yeah. And so it was running with very low CPU and disk priorities. You'd think that might not be a huge deal if it was just the occasional human who would SSH in and then, you know, otherwise identical boxes for troubleshooting or whatever. It probably would have been fine, but there wouldn't have been a story <laughs> if not for the next part. Mm -hmm. This company also had a home rolled deploy program that worked by SSHing into the box and running stuff. So if this machine was supposed to serve cat pictures, it might SSH in and run commands to install the cat picture storage stuff, and then it might run the commands to start it up. This should come as no surprise that the cat picture server also started with these really loose priorities because SSHD was running as 19. Every process started by it, including your shell, inherited the plus 19, and your shell inherited that to all of the processes you spawn. Uh, so, you know, now everything's running at the lowest priority, which should be equal to everything running at the same priority as uh, equal priorities again. But so if anything, <laughs> if everything's top priority, yeah. it should have pushed to the front since the program was really the only thing the machine sh should have been worried about. Everything else was just auxiliary cruft for housekeeping and whatnot. Imagine trying to troubleshoot this. You find out the machines are getting slow, but only after you do a fresh deploy of them. And then only sometimes. But once it happens, it starts happening everywhere. Then if you reboot the machine, you know, sigh, but it happens, then it just vanishes and stops happening until maybe months go by, and then it'll suddenly happen again, and it just kind of spreads <laughs> like an infection. Someone eventually realized that the cat picture program was being niced down to nothing, and that it inherited it from SSHD, which inherited it from the management stuff when it restarted SSHD after updating uh, glibc. And it was trying to avoid a bigger disaster of having all logins fail from that point forward. As for why the processes didn't notice and then undo the nice ionized values, think about it. Everyone assumes you're going to get started in the usual baseline default values. Nobody ever expects that they might get started down in the gutter and have to ratchet themselves back up. In fact, I don't, on BSD, once a process, if a process that started as a non-root user has a nice value, they can always become more nice, but they can never be less nice. Uh, to apply any negative delta to your nice value, you have to be the super user. I'm pretty sure about that. Uh, nobody ever expects that they might start down in the gutter. So why would you even think about that? Uh, I mean, for me, I probably would have noticed that sooner just because FreeBSD's top shows the nice value right there. And if you just see yeah. everything being at 19, it might stand out. But I don't know that Linux top has that column by default. Anyway, uh, truly, uh, this was the way for processes to infect each other. And this inspired the kind of naughty name one of my coworkers gave it, Unix Herp. <laughs> uh, incidentally, since we don't really start persistent server type processes directly in the systemd world, I don't think it would happen anymore. You run systemctl to say start x, and then it goes off and does it in its own context. The intent is conveyed without any of the extra funk you might have picked up along the way. 
So like I know doing service blah, 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 start on FreeBSD purposely also clears the environment and does a bunch of things differently than if you just ran the rc.dscript manually. And that's, again, part of that reason. Uh, I think it also at least has the option of changing the logging class. Uh, I've done something similar to this on a shell server where I used login.conf to set the default nice value of processes started by uh, users. So you know, users who paid me more money got a lower nice value on their processes when they logged in. Oh, yeah. That's why you have login classes, right? right? So, so every user started at like two and the cheaper account started at like five so that they wouldn't, so that the more expensive accounts would uh, get some priority. And Upgrade. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly cool. Um, another thing that we found on the internet is a tutorial how to install a Navidrome music server on FreeBSD. And this is what this article is about. Uh, so for the people who have never heard of it, like I did, uh, what is Navidrome? It's an open source web-based music collection server and streamer. It gives us the freedom to listen to our music collection from any browser or mobile device. It's like our own personal Spotify. It can manage a huge music collection, uh, streams virtually any audio format available, reads and uses all of our beautifully curated metadata, very low resource consumptions, other things, very cool. Uh, so definitely check it out. How can we install that? Well, it's simple to, uh, on FreeBSD at least, uh, other BSD is similar, package install Navidrome, and after the installation is through, we can then edit the corresponding config files found under user local etc, Navidrome, and then config.toml, so you can kind of guess in what kind of software this has been written. Yep. <laughs> Looks in their next example, uh, they, uh, the autocorrect messed up their command. They have uh, survive instead of service. Ah, uh, exactly. Oh, whoops. Okay, yeah, it's service Navidrome enabled. So make that into rc.conf so that it starts on the service reboot. And then you can start the service itself by running service Navidrome start. We can also use Nginx in there as a reverse proxy server. And to edit that, they provide the configuration file in user local etc nginx vhosts. That tells you what to do and how you set this up. And then last thing in their uh, etc host, they also added a uh, well navidrome.domain so that they can easier navigate to it by entering the name instead of the IP address. And then starting nginx gives you in your browser the navidrome web interface and there you can browse your music collection. Easy enough. Yeah, it looks like Plex for music. Mm -hmm. Although I think Plex has yeah, support for music, but this this also looks nice. Cool. Yeah, I'm fairly sure you can also, you know, share this with uh, people in your house and stuff like that. Very cool. Um, what also is cool is our feedback and questions section every week. But if you don't send us enough, we don't have much to fill in here. So keep sending us any questions, anything you uh, got stuck in the BSD world with or want to know the answer to, we try to help you here. Or anything that you want to uh, tell us, we're also happy to get that. It's feedback at bsdnow.tv, your email address for reaching us. The first one is Tyler with a question, is this enough for VMs, he asks. And Tyler writes, greetings and thanks for the great show. Well, welcome. Uh, we always love to have feedback like this. Uh, I have what might be a dumb question. I run PFSense and Trunas and use flavors of BSD Unix Solaris for work at, at Xerox. Oh, cool. But I'm by no means any sort of expert. On my Trunas server, I pretty much just use it for storage and running a Plex server. 
I also have ran and planned to again run the next cloud server on it. Crashed when I was out of town and I have not fixed it yet. Mm. My question is, should I be able to run VMs on this as well? I tried to get them to work, but from what I could tell, FreeBSD seemed to think I had an old hardware. This is an older Dell server with a Xeon processor. I run Linux on another box that is identical and runs VMs on it as well as a Proxmox server on this same hardware with no issues. I now realize that while typing this that I probably should be giving much better details on the errors I ran into. I don't use this anywhere close to this capacity so that is why I was thinking of running VMs on it. Should this hardware with TrueNAS or if I load FreeBSD or another version of BSD on it be able to run VMs? Thank you again. And he provides the output from his D message about yes. CPU capabilities. Uh, so sadly... He's exactly one CPU generation too old to support Beehive properly. Oh, bad. Uh, so he's got a Nehalem EP from 2009, uh, and you need an E56 something something to fully support it. Um, with the version you have, you can use Beehive, but only with one CPU core per VM, Ooh. I think, is what you're at there. Um, huh. So yes, you have exactly one generation too old of a CPU. Your the motherboard you have in that machine can support an E56XX probably, but yeah, you're basically just one generation too old to have full Beehive support. Um, uh. But I think there is a way to get a VM running somewhat on what you have. But yes, uh, you know your machine is 13 years old. Mm. Like VirtualBox headless? Or? Um, so VirtualBox yeah. will work. It just probably won't be fully accelerated. Uh, yeah. And I said, it, I, I'm pretty sure you can get Beehive to work on that CPU. It's just only one virtual CPU per VM. Then maybe as a nice uh, jail server? Well, yeah, so like it'll work running. fine for that. It's just, uh, oh. um, yeah. Luckily, all the machines I had when Beehive came out were the E56 hundreds not the 5500s mm -hmm. and so i didn't run into these problems yeah but yes you're right on the cusp where it mostly supports but not quite and i think you can make it work to some degree but uh it, it doesn't work great out of the box but anything a year newer than that and on so anything from like 2010 and on should work perfectly but oh that's yeah 2009. that's fairly decent as performance goes yeah Okay, sorry we couldn't help further with your hardware, <laughs> but at least you know what you can do and what you can't. So thanks for your feedback and up to the next person, who uh, Kevin, uh, about BSD from RamDisk. Uh, he writes, hi, I finally got around to testing MFS BSD, which seems like a good fit for my use case, but I seem to have run into a little issue mounting my Z-Pool. Z-Pool never mounts upon reboot because it always marked as being last used on another system, i.e. on a running MFS BSD system, I issue a Z-Pool mount dash A and nothing mounts. Little playing around with the system shows that my ETC host ID is randomly generated on every reboot. Looking at etc rcd host ID, the script seems to be generating a random host ID because the function host ID underscore hardware reads a blocked UEID from kn-q as in bios.system.uuid. The blacklisted UUID picked up from host ID underscore hardware is long number uh, no, or long just, ID. I have not basically <laughs> zero two three four five six seven eight nine. So it, obviously, it's it's basically what the host hardware returns when they're is no UID to return. Yeah. Yeah, so he has not been able to garner info from web searches as to why this UID could be blacklisted or how ZFS determines from which system the pool was last used. 
Am I correct in thinking that this is how ZFS thinks the pool was last used by a foreign system? Yeah, so ZFS uses the host ID of the system. So when the um, when it boots up, it looks at the host ID that has that last imported the pool. And if it's different, then it says, hey, uh, because you can have systems where you have, say, one JBOD full of disks connected to two different servers. Uh, and so when it sees a different host ID, it assumes that that pool might actually still be in use by another machine and you importing it could scribble all over your data and make a terrible, terrible mess. So it defaults to not doing that. Uh, and so if you if you actually do a zpool export to export the pool completely, uh, it will zero that out and you won't get that error. But obviously if you're booting from it, that's not an option because you can't export the pool while your, your OS is running on it. Um, so yes, it uses the, the host ID to tell that. There used to be a sysctl to disable the host ID check, but I don't think that survived the change to OpenZFS 2.0. Okay. Um, so yeah, there's that. Uh, so why is that particular UID, UUID blacklisted? Because if you look at it, you can tell that it's not actually a random UUID. It's basically a default value for when the UID is all zero. Uh, and so static, it just means yeah. this isn't a real one. Every machine would have the same one, therefore defeating the point of having a host ID. Uh, are motherboard UUIDs user-editable or are they burned in? He also um, asks. So they are part of like the FRU, which usually does mean it is somewhat possible to change it depending on the hardware. Um, I like I think I can change some of those values via the IPMI thing on my on server on my some of my servers. Um, oh. You might also just be able to override the um, KM value by just setting smbios.system.uuid in loader.com. And as long as you're using the same, you're only using this image on one machine, you could just set it to something and have it uh, be statically a good, you know, take the current random UUID and set it in your loader.com so that it just stays stable. Mm. Uh, and is that the correct way around the issue? Probably or what would you um, say? It, that, or if it still exists, the uh, ignore host ID sysctl, uh, oh, which will mm -hmm. tell ZFS not to bother checking that. Okay. But yeah, so MFSBSD kind of does that on purpose because it expects, you know, you build the image once and use it on many computers, so it doesn't want a static uh, ID, and so each reboot is just a different one. But I can see how that'd be annoying if you're trying to use it persistently. But I love that we, over the years, got even more ZFS questions that are very detailed, not just, hey how can I build a pool or how do I create a data set? This is always getting us excited because you use ZFS differently than we do and the kind of use cases that you have differs from ours and it nevertheless ceases to be interesting. Okay, uh, thanks for this question. And next is Malcolm uh, with a wired headset and FreeBSD question. Uh, I might gather where this is going. That goes, I finally have gotten around to setting up my headphone jack on my Dell XPS in FreeBSD and so far it works great. Plugging my headphones into the jack switched audio over. But my headphones are also a headset with a built-in mic and I'd like to use that in FreeBSD as well, but I'm getting stuck. I'm also pretty sure that my headphone jack supports this. The image next to the jack is headphones with a boom mic attached and I'm pretty sure headphone jacks have supported this for years. I've attached my D message from a verbose boot, but in case that doesn't work, here is the output. So that's um, given here in the show notes. Note that this is before I set up headphones to work, but now I put headphones on ID 33 instead of one uh, into as one. Okay. Any tips? I'm not even sure what to look for. Maybe my jack has a line in, just uh, it's not supported. My headphones have three bands on it. 
It works as expected in a mobile phone as well as my 10 plus years old MacBook. I've never tested it in another OS on my XPS to see if it works there. I'm not sure, uh, not quite sure how to read the output of the table I send in that to the mic in the NID18, just on the standard microphone on the laptop, or does that correspond to the mic input related to the jack? I can't see in the D-message output what this is. Uh, yeah, maybe I just need to figure out how to flip the mic input to NID18 so that it corresponds to the jack input, question mark. Yeah, uh, I don't have much experience with this, but um, yeah, I don't actually think I have any machines that have the, the kind of combo port. Actually, maybe my T530 does. Yeah, uh, anyway, I think one of my laptops has the separate microphone and headphone port, uh, which is great because it works with all the, the analog headsets I have. Uh, but I can see why on modern ones, A, one port it saves you a bit of space on the the side of the laptop, which is at a premium for some reason. I don't know. Um, and then the other point being that if you're mobile, the, the headset you have is probably the same one for your phone rather than a special one for your laptop. Uh, and so being compatible with that or, you know, being the one that you can buy at a store in wherever you are traveling, uh, because that's they sell cell phone accessories everywhere, but not necessarily computer stuff. I can see why uh, the laptop might have that. So hopefully somebody uh, watching or listening to this episode will head over to our GitHub and, and see this question. Uh, you might have to switch to raw mode on GitHub to have the formatting come out right uh, and see the output and have an answer for you on exactly what you have to do to get the headphone jack to the mic to actually Probably show the work. right thing. Because I think you might be right that um, the thing identified as mic on this uh, thing was probably the built-in microphone on the laptop. And he'll need to switch the line in or whatever to get that from the headphones. Or I don't know if somehow the actual headphone jack uh, that's you know noted as being on the right is actually um, somehow an input and an output at the same time or something. Yeah, uh, could so, very well be. Uh, sadly, the answer is I have no idea. Uh, I would look and see if you have more than one PCM device, see if it's just one of those. Oh, PCM uh, one yeah. or something? Yeah, there's a, PCM, there's zero. PCM zero is your microphone two. Uh, but I wonder if you have, you know, a PCM1 or something. Sadly, I think the answer is pretty much trial and error. Could be that, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Maybe someone out there is smarter than we did in the audio department or in the headphone space. So uh, with uh, everyone doing video calls these days, they, the chances are big that someone might have an answer here. We'd be happy to cover that and link this uh, to this episode when there is someone writing this to feedback at bsdnow.tv. And uh, with that, uh, we're done for today in this episode. Hope you liked this episode. As always, you'll be happy to hear that we have another one for you next week uh, with Tom then and myself as, as planned. And uh, let us know how you like the show. We are on the Twitters, twitter.com slash bsdnow. Uh, any other ways to reach us is, of course, our feedback at free, uh, well, bsdnow.tv. And that's it. 